Let's take our Bibles then and read from Scripture this morning, from from Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to read from verse 15. The author has just introduced Christ uh, appearing as a high priest of good things that have come. And in verse 15 we read, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant, that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Lord, may Your Holy Spirit, who inspired the authors of Scripture, who revealed Your truth to them, and they, through their words to us, we pray that the Holy Spirit will illumine our minds and quicken, Lord, our understanding to know what You are saying to us today. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen. <clears throat> One of the things we've been noticing as we've gone through the book of Hebrews is the way in which the author is constantly reflecting backwards into the history that was familiar to the people to whom he's writing. They were, these men were Hebrews, men and women were Hebrews, that is, they were converts from Judaism to Christianity. That was their background. But he doesn't simply refer to the past because the people in his audience are Jewish Christians. He refers to the past because 
the history of Judaism, the history of Israel, was God's object lesson, if you will, teaching us the principles that apply to us in our day. In fact, the whole argument of Hebrews is this, that what happened in the past was actually happened and written for our sakes. Everything that occurred to Israel as a nation from the beginning of its story, from the Exodus right through to the very end, was in fact for Christian believers. And one of the things he's done, as we've been noticing, is he uses the the tabernacle, that is the, the tent in which Israel worshipped during the time of the Exodus and before the temple was built in Jerusalem. He uses the tabernacle as the object lesson to teach us an important lesson about the relationship between us and God. What is our relationship between us and God? You would have seen this very, very quickly uh, as you saw the tabernacle built. The tabernacle is just a tent. It, it, It has two rooms. There's the holy place, and there's the holy of holies. Everything outside of that is unholy. So, where are you and I? Well, you and I would be part of the group of people around it uh, who are there to worship, but we would not be able to go in there. We would not be able to go in there unless we belong to the priestly caste, the tribe of Levi. Only the priests were allowed to actually go into the sanctuary, into the holy place. Only they had the task of of operating. We could watch them operate, but we would not be allowed in there. Something in the very distance was meant to impress upon people, God is holy, you are not. God is distant, you cannot go near, unless something dies. And so, between the people and the holy place, there is the altar of sacrifice on which every day, all day, creatures were dying. Now, what was the point of all of this? Was it just, was it just that those were barbaric days? Those were days when people are Bronze Age people in Moses' time, and they don't know very much, and they're, they're pretty ruthless and so on. Is, is it, does it reflect the days in which they lived? Well, according to the Scriptures, according to Moses, Rather, what went on reflected God's will, not human will. It had been revealed from God in heaven what they should do in that tabernacle and temple. So, what was it teaching? At the very heart of the teaching of the worship of Israel, the rites and ceremonies that went with the worship of Israel, there was the the teaching about the relationship between people and God, that God was holy and that we are not holy. Now, what do we mean when we talk about the holiness of God? Well, there's a sense in which the word holy means, uh, in its root meaning, to cut. We sometimes use it in the sense of someone being a cut above average, uh, to, 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 to say that this person is uh, better off or more intelligent or has better looks than other people, you can tell they stand out because they're different. Well, that's using the word in the sense it's used in the Old Testament, but with this, very di- this great difference. God is holy, which means He is utterly, utterly distinct from what we are. 
He's not a creature as we are. All that we know in our everyday lives has to do with creaturely existence, but God is the creator. He is outside of the creation. He's above creation. Everything that we are, He is different from. He is nothing like us. We may be like Him in this way or that, but He is nothing like us. To be holy is to be, the technical word is ontologically, in His being, utterly other, utterly distinct, utterly different. But He's not only holy in His being, He's also holy in His character. By nature, He defines what is good. By nature, He defines what is moral and right. By nature, He defines what is just and unjust. And everything that we know in our relative categories of what is good and bad, right and wrong, just and unjust, we derive from the absolute sense in which God knows those categories. Now, the problem is that we find ourselves at a distance from God. In fact, you could say the whole story of the Bible is the story of the infinite distance between God and His creatures. There's an illustration of this. For example, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet is one of the holier prophets of Israel. To be a holy prophet means that he's set apart from everybody else in the nation to be the mouthpiece through which God speaks to people. So that when Isaiah speaks, or even Isaiah speaks, God speaks. God speaks through his holy servant, the prophet. Isaiah goes into the temple one day. You read about it in Isaiah chapter 6. He went into the temple, and he says, I saw the Lord. He had a vision of God, high and lifted up, he says, and His glory filled the temple. And he hears the seraphim singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. And Isaiah says, I'm undone. I'm coming apart. I am disintegrating. I'm falling, uh, uh, falling to pieces. Because to be in the presence of the holy exposes the unholiness even in a holy prophet of God. To be in the presence of the holy means that psychologically we begin to fall apart means that morally we begin to fall apart, means that we are overwhelmed with a sense of the infinite moral distance there is between God and the creature. Now, that takes us to the heart of the issue of the tabernacle, which is a visual aid of that moral distance. Only the priests get to function within the tabernacle. And they spend their days dealing with the problem of people's distance from God. Now, that's the idea then that lies behind this chapter and our previous studies, especially when we thought of the work of the mediator, the priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in this passage that we've just read together, where our attention is brought to look at, again, at the work of the mediator. Look at these words of verse 15. Therefore, 
He is the mediator of a new covenant, or we might put it like this, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. That He is Christ. Christ is the mediator. He is the one responsible to deal with both parties who are estranged, God and creatures, God and me, God and you. And how does He deal with this? Well, He goes to the heart of the problem. Back in verse 11, He goes to heaven itself. He is the man Christ Jesus, but He goes to heaven itself the place where God in all His glory is, the presence of God is. He goes there in order that He might represent us and go in our place. In verse 12, He goes there by virtue of His death, that is, by virtue of His blood being shed. His bloodshed secures our rescue. One sacrifice of Christ has the virtue to cover and cleanse and put away all the sins of God's people to the end of time. And so in verse 14, the climax, we read that the blood of Christ can cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. You know, if you watch the priests in action there in the holy place from the distance in which you stand, you would see that they go about their tasks, and every time they do something, off they go to a a big laver, a big uh, basin of water, and they wash themselves, and then they go about their task, and they're always going back and washing their hands again, and going back to their tasks, washing their hands again, putting on their hand cream, and then going back to their task again. They're doing this all the time because it is being enforced both to them and to those who are watching them that you need to be clean to be in the presence of God. But it stands to reason that as you're watching them going through this little process, all they're doing is cleaning their hands. They're not cleaning their insides. All that those Old Testament ceremonies and rites did were to make it possible for you ceremonially to worship God. But the good news of the New Testament is, as we saw last week, that the blood of Christ cleanses the conscience. It goes straight to that monitor in our soul, that moral monitor in our hearts that is the thing that registers when we have done wrong and that we are wrong in the presence of God. Well, the work of our mediator then is an effective work Look at the language that he uses. Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant. Those words, new covenant, come from Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, we are told that at the heart of this promise of a new covenant is this. God says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. At the heart of the new covenant, there is forgiveness for sin. There is the removal of sin so that people no longer are hindered from coming close to God. They are able to come close to God. 
Not only is there forgiveness, but this new covenant involves eternal and eternal inheritance. You get something. There is something that you inherit, good things, a new heaven and a new earth, a resurrection body, a relationship with God. You inherit these things, and you inherit these things in such a way that you share in the very nature of God Himself, who is eternal. You share something that has the quality of God in it. It is an eternal inheritance. It does not fade or spoil or disappear. And this comes to all those who've been called, all those who come to believe, all those who come to trust in the Lord Jesus receive this. It is an effective work, the work of our mediator. To show you how effective it is, the author goes on to show you that not only is it effective for us, it is retroactive. It's effective for the people who lived before Jesus came. Have you ever heard anyone ask the question, what about people in the Old Testament before Jesus arrived? Were they forgiven their sins? The answer of this text is, they were. He died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. When those Old Testament believers went to the tabernacle, and they went there believing in God, and they went there believing that God had made promises to Israel, and they saw what went on inside the tabernacle, the busy priests washing themselves, sacrificing animals, washing themselves, offering incense uh, as a visual aid of prayer that ascends up to, to God in heaven and that is received by God in heaven. As they saw this repeated day after day after day, year after year, as they saw the high priest going into the Holy of Holies on that one day of atonement, year after year, they were reminded that there is something coming. We are waiting for something to come. We're doing this regularly, over and over again, because there's something God has promised for the future. There's the promise that God made to Abraham, that he was going to have a single seed, a one offspring, who would bring blessing to all the families of the world. He hasn't come yet. We're waiting for this. There's the promise God made to David, that from his royal line would come a Savior and a Messiah, a king and a prophet and a priest who would bring us to God. Because God wants to do more than simply forgive your sin. God wants more sim than simply to clean you up. God wants you in his company. He wants you in his presence. He wants you right there in the Holy of Holies where he is. And he will not be content until he has brought his people there. That's the inheritance. And the work of the mediator, the work of the mediator reassures us that those men and women who were believing God's promise, and as a sign of believing God's promise, were making their offerings and bringing their sacrifices and offering their prayers, that they were forgiven even though their sacrifices only dealt with the exterior. They were doing that. They were, they were pictures of what Christ would do decisively and fully at the end 
of history. They were retrospective. And now that Christ has come, because He, verse 12, has entered into the holy place, into the heavenly temple, not by the blood of animals, but by His own blood. Now that Christ has done that for us, He's opened the way to God. Now, you'll see in this passage, not only is there an emphasis on the work of the mediator that that is effective for us, retroactive and therefore effective for people before Christ came, but there's an, an emphasis here on the death of the mediator, the death of the mediator. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for will takes effect only at death since it's not in effect as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, this death, this, this word for will here, is the same word that's already been used in verse 15 of covenant. It's the very same word. You could translate it covenant, and I think covenant is a good way of translating it rather than will, for it's something more than simply a will that is in view here. Now, what he's arguing is that wherever there's a covenant, there has to be a death. That's true of a human will. Uh, when, uh, when your grandparents or your great-grandparents leave you stuff in their will, they have to die before it comes to you. That, that's, that's a general human rule, I think. But here the author is going further. He's saying that's also the rule in a covenant. Where there isn't a covenant agreement between parties, there's always got to be a death involved. Now, interestingly, I think the background to this is uh, the language that you find in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, God comes to Abraham, and He gives Abraham the promise of the gospel. He promises the coming of the Messiah. He promises blessing to the world, the families of the earth. And uh, Abraham, we're told, believes God, and he's credited with righteousness because he believes God's promise. Why is he credited with a right standing with God? Well, because he believes in the coming of the Messiah. But in Genesis 15, God comes and visits with, in, in, a, in a vision, visits with Abraham. We know from… Uh, research that's only occurred in the last 50 years or so, we've discovered that there was a background to this word covenant in the nations round about Israel. Uh, two parties would come together, they'd, uh, they'd have a chinwag, and they'd uh, discuss their, their, the agreements they were going to draw up. And then after they'd done all of that, each party would kill an animal. They would lay the animals down on the ground, the carcasses down on the ground, and then together both parties would walk in between the slaughtered animals uh, and shake hands, as it were, and say effectively to one another, let this slaughtering happen to me if I break my word, if I don't keep this agreement. Now in Genesis 15, God gets Abraham to kill the animals lay them out. Abram does that. He's exhausted. By the end of it, he falls asleep. And God comes as a blazing fire 
and oven, as it were, and God Himself walks between the pieces. In other words, God effectively takes upon Himself the curse of breaking the covenant for both parties. He takes Abram's part and his own part. Abram represents us. We are covenant breakers. Every time we break the law of God, we we show and demonstrate that we're covenant breakers. But the great message of the gospel, the great message of this text is that God has undertaken Himself to take the effects of the curse, the consequences of the curse, the death imposed by the curse, the slaughter and sacrifice involved in the curse on Himself, on behalf of His people. That's the remarkable thing. It involves the death of one. In this case, the one party in the covenant. Remember the Last Supper. The Lord Jesus brings together the language of the new covenant and the language of sacrifice. When He takes the cup and He says, this cup is the new covenant in My blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. The blood of Jesus is not simply some, some substance that is lying somewhere in some receptacle. The blood of Jesus points to His violent, sacrificial death in place of His people, dying my death in my place. But the author has something else to underline. He wants to underline the finality of the mediator. In verses 24 to 28, he stresses the superiority of the sacrifice of Christ. His death is final and sufficient for us. I want you just to notice something in the text here. Right at the very beginning, we're told in, uh, at the beginning of this section in verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come. That word, Christ appeared. When did Christ appear? At the incarnation. The one who'd appeared to uh, Abraham in a vision as a a flaming furnace going between the, the slaughtered animals and therefore taking on himself the curse and consequences of the broken covenant appeared not as a blazing, fiery furnace, but as a human being in our flesh. He appeared, He appeared in order that He might bear our sin, that bearing sin and scoffing root, He might stand in our place. That's what Jesus came to do. And He came to do this, the author says, once and for all. Once and for all, not multitudes over and over and over again. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would take blood with him, and he would do that this year. He'll do it next year. Ten years from now, he'll still be doing it. A hundred years, a thousand years, the high priest still going in. But this one, this one, 
our mediator, offered himself once for all. He appeared in flesh and blood to shed his blood on behalf of his people. But I want you to notice something else it says here. It says that the one who appeared appears. Look at verse 24. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. He has taken our humanity with him into the presence of God. He is there. His very appearance there is all that is required to demonstrate to the powers of hell that their accusations will come to nothing. That every accusation against every child of God before a holy God will ultimately be squashed because of His appearance in heaven on our behalf. His appearance in heaven says something to the law of God that demands our punishment. It says this, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No accusation of hell. No condemnation of the law. Because Christ has appeared, is appearing in the presence of God right now on behalf of His people. He appears on our behalf. He is there in our place on behalf of His people. But there's more than this. The one who appeared, past tense, the one who appears now in heaven will appear a second time. That's the, the climax of this passage. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. The same Lord Jesus, the same man Christ Jesus, the same Lamb of God, the same Savior of the world, the same Lord Christ will appear a second time. This time He will appear not in meek humanity, not in a baby, in a baby's form in a cattle shed. This time He will appear in great power and glory as God the Son in human form, in all splendor and majesty of the Godhead. He will appear in the clouds of glory. He will appear so that every eye from every moment of history, from all around the world, will see Him at the same moment, in an instant. He will appear from heaven. That is the very next item on God's agenda for humanity. Nothing between that and that, this and that. That is the next item on the agenda. He will appear. That means, as John says in Revelation chapter 1, every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him will look upon Him whom they pierced. That's where history is going. And when He comes again, when He comes again, when He descends from, from heaven, this time He is not coming to bear sin. This time He does not come in humiliation and weakness, in our frailty, in our mortality. 
This time he appears in great power and glory. He comes not to bear sin, but to bring salvation, to bring eternal salvation to his people. The final rescue, the final rescue from tears and sickness and desertion and depression, anxiety, fear, death, the final, the final rescue from everything that changes and decays and comes to nothing. The final rescue from all the powers of hell. The final rescue from indwelling sin. The final rescue from everything that leads to death. When he appears, he appears to bring salvation to his people. To those who are waiting for him. What is the present posture of the believer? The text tells us that the present posture of the believer is that we are waiting for him. Those Old Testament saints, they were waiting. They were waiting long in hope and fear, waiting for the Messiah to come. We're in a better place than them, but we're still waiting for the Messiah to come in power and glory. He has come. He now appears. He will appear a second time. Lo, He comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of His reign. Hallelujah! Jesus comes and comes to reign. And all of history is moving to that moment. And we are waiting and expecting to see Him on that great day. Brothers and sisters, it is that posture of waiting. It is that posture of knowing that this is coming that transforms the present, that gives us something to look towards in the cycle of human sin and violence, in the cycle of human abuse, in the cycle of human death. This is what we have. We are going somewhere. We are not trapped in the circular motion of life here. We are people who are on a journey towards that day when He shall appear. Well, it excites me. It makes me live. Martin Luther said we should live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose today, and we're coming tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would comfort our hearts with your word. We pray that you would particularly lift up our eyes, that we would look with great expectation for the coming of our Savior. Thank you that he, His work is effective. Thank you that His blood is enough. Thank you that His finality means that there's no one else to wait for, no one else to look for but Him. We pray that you would keep us on the journey waiting 
for that day. In his name we pray. Amen.